hey, as we kick off this sermon this morning, every Sunday I'm going to mention this one thing, and it's vital to the whole thing that we're trying to do this year, make this place not a church but home. And if it's going to be home, we got to realize that people are not projects. Can I get an amen? You are not a project to be fixed. Everybody say, I'm not a project. Everybody say, I'm a person. And you're a person that's loved by God, and you're a person that is loved right here at home at TWBC. People are not projects to be fixed. They are people to be loved. Many times when people walk in the door, we see them. They're either broke, they're divorced, they're going through a divorce, they're, they, they stink, they're alcoholics, they're depressed, they're, they're on the verge of, of a family crisis of some kind, their kids are absolute hellions, and you're happy to send them to the children's department. You're not clapping to honor them. You're clapping that you get an hour away from them. Amen. I mean... Uh, we, we think like that sometimes, and when people walk in, we begin to look at, oh, Lord, look at all the stuff that we've got to fix in this family. And people are not projects. People are not things to be fixed. They're people to be loved, and when we will love the way the Father loves, the Father can not just fix but make brand new the broken pieces of somebody else's life. Amen? And so it's our heart here at TWBC, not for us to fix you, not even for the Father to fix you, but prepare an environment called home where the presence of the Father shows up so strongly that you don't just get fixed or repaired, you get made brand new. You get made brand new, completely restored. That's what the word redeemed means, brand new, brought back to an original state, amen? And so that's our heart here at TWBC, that when you feel the presence of God here, you are brought back to made brand new and original state. And our definition for home here at TWBC is where the presence of the Father is. Where the presence of the Father is. And our definition of homelessness is this, the absence of the presence of the Father. Some of you love coming to Sunday morning worship services because you feel the presence of the Father and you hate going to your house because, you know, when you go back to that house, you're getting homeless, not necessarily a home. You may have a place of residence, but it doesn't have the presence of the Father there. And so we must begin to change that atmosphere. And if it's going to change anywhere, it's going to change here in the church. And you get to carry it home to your family and watch it overflow in, the part, in every part of your family's life. Last week, we did a crazy awesome message where the power of God moved. And we used this illustration with these three chairs. And the first chair was this. It said, home. And on the front of it, it said, sonship underneath. And we labeled this as chair one last week. And his home is in place. We know that sonship is placed. In the area of sonship, you simply receive from the kingdom. You receive from the kingdom of God. So in sonship, this is where we sit. And we labeled this chair one last week. Many people in the body of Christ, and we mentioned this stat last week, 93% of the people in the body of Christ, they get born again but they don't receive a spirit of sonship. Therefore, you can be born again and you can be homeless and a slave rather than born again and a son in the kingdom. When you get born again, you must receive all that Christ has for you, not just your ticket to heaven. Amen. And a lot of people are satisfied with just salvation. Some people say, I'm, I'm more than saved, I'm born again. But some people have missed it all the way around, and that's the majority of the body of Christ. In fact, 93% of us, we never really received sonship in our life. We receive salvation, we're born again, but for us to love ourselves the way God loves us falls into a problem. So we end up finding ourselves here in chair two where we come to church every Sunday, but we're literally homeless and we're slaves in the kingdom of God. And the older son in the, sp in the story of the prodigal son, um, he, he addressed the father like this, and we mentioned this in last week's message. The NIV version says, Father, I have been slaving in your house all these years. 
I've been slaving in your house all these years. By his very terminology, he called himself a slave. Many people in the body of Christ get upset and burned out at church because you've been slaving in God's house all these years. God never called you to slave. He called you to son. He didn't call you to slave in his house. He called you to be a son in his house. And I believe with all my heart that the father, in the story of the prodigal son, his heart was broken at that moment because he he said, Son, I never called you to be a slave. I called you to be a son, but yet every day you got up and you went with the slaves when I needed you in my house being a son. See, in this chair you get everything through the kingdom by receiving. Through this chair you try to impress God by achieving. And when we try to impress God by achieving, we find ourselves in a desperate state. And the third and final chair was homeless. They don't have a home, and they're lost. They've never had an encounter with the Father. They've never had an experience with Jesus Christ. So these people over here are lost. They're the ones who need to be born again. They're the ones who need to receive sonship. And the funny thing about these three chairs is, though this person and this person say they have the same belief system, their actions are totally different. And though this person and this person say they have completely different belief systems, their actions line up being eerily similar. Do you see what the issue is? The issue is not born again and lost. The issue is one knows his place at home and is a son. The other is homeless. And when you're homeless, you'll lead to two places. And we addressed this in the very uh, first message. Homeless leads to two places, either religion or rebellion. Either religion or rebellion. And so in that, we must begin to change the way we do things. And last week, we talked about changing chairs. And this is point three of my message last week. Pastor, we long to be in chair number one, but I always constantly find myself in chair number two. And what is the issue? What is the key? What is the, 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 the ability to move from this chair into this chair? And we talked about a verse of scripture that directly identified what the problem is. And it's Mark chapter 10, verse 29 through 31. And he says, this is the most important. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And here's the deal. This person here loves the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength. They're slaving for him. They truly love him. This person over here loves the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they're giving God all they have. They've given God everything, and they receive sonship. And the, 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 the Bible goes on to say, and the second command is likened to it, love your neighbor. This person truly loves their neighbor. They're doing all these acts of good work, all these deeds of good work, all these actions that say, I'm proving that I'm a Christian by my actions. This person over here says, I truly love my neighbor. I give them heaven. I give them heaven. See, in this chair, the problem is not do they love God. It's not do they love their neighbor The problem is they're trying to give them something they don't have. They don't have heaven because they don't have home. Here they're able to give them heaven, so they truly love their neighbor. The big differentiating point is this. The differentiating point is when the Bible says you'll still love your neighbor, they love their neighbor as, everybody say, yourself. And if I'm supposed to love my neighbor as I love myself, that means I first have to love me the way God loves me. I can love God with all my heart. I love him and I'm passionate about him. I love God. I can even love my neighbor. But I can't fathom looking in the mirror and loving myself, this person that I dislike, this person that is imperfect, this person that all I see is my flaws. How can I love this person the way God loves me? This person over here says, I love my neighbor as I love myself because I don't see me. I see the blood of Jesus covering me. 
I don't see me. I see the power of the Most High God resting on me. I don't see me. I see myself as a son in the kingdom with kingdom rights. And I've been made righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. And so it's not by works that I can see myself and love me for me. It's by my Father's love that I received. And when I receive his love, then I can love me the way I love me. We're in this chair. In this chair, we struggle. We struggle with loving ourselves the way the Father. And so we say, if I work harder, if I preach better, if I fast more, if I pray more, if I read more, I can make myself look good. And then I'll be able to love myself because I look good. And when I look good, then I'll be able to love myself. See, in this person, everything is done by achieving. In this person, everything is done by receiving in the kingdom of God. So how do you change chairs? It was, we summed it up in three words. We change chairs by this. Everybody say receive, receive. Become, become, release. release. Receive, receive, become, become. Release. release. See, when, the, when, when you finally get in this chair, you receive the love of the Father. There's nothing I can do to make myself perfect. It's because of the Father's love. There's nothing I can do to make myself great. It's because of the Father's love. I receive that love. And when I open my heart to receive that love, he's going to be able to not fix or repair, but make the broken places in my heart brand new. Make the broken places in my heart brand new. When I receive that love, because the Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love, and it begins to declare, when I receive that love, I can then become that love. And when I receive the love of the Father, I can then love like the Father loves. I can look at somebody and not see their problem, but I see the promise. I can look at somebody and not see the dirt, but see the gold within them. I can look at somebody and not see their issue, but see their assurance in Christ Jesus because of the love of the Father that came into me, and now I can release it onto them. And this one, we say, if you start acting right, if you start doing right, if you start being right, then you can earn the love of the Father. And this is why... Chair three is repelled by this chair, but longs to come in contact with this chair. This is why this chair here reaches far many more people in chair three than chair two ever reaches in chair three. In fact, 93% of the people in this chair are homeless, and, or 93% of believers are in this chair. They're homeless and they're lost. So 7% are doing the bulk of kingdom work because they receive the love of the Father, so then they can release the love of the Father. And when we can receive, we can then become and then release the love of the Father. And so as we begin to release the love of the Father, transformation happens. Transformation happens. And this is all good in theory. Can I get an amen? amen. But what is the reality of our life? See, it does no good to preach a sermon that doesn't equate to the outside world. It doesn't do any good to give you great spiritual insight that you cannot, apple, uh, that you cannot uh, physically apply into the world that you live in. So the problem we face in church is I can give you great spiritual material, but if you have no way of bringing it into your reality, into your world, it's never going to change you and it's never going to change your world. We must begin to make this whole thing become into reality today. And to make it come into reality, we're going to do something. Yesterday or Last week I pulled away these two chairs and we had sonship out there. Today I'm pulling away these two chairs and we're having chair two out there. Now here's what I need. I need some volunteers this morning. Some of y'all are like, oh, Lord, he asked for this last week. And I'm just going to pick on people this morning. Can, can I do that? Is that okay? A Andy and Linda, can I pick on y'all for a second? If they'll come on up here. Andy and Linda, going to pick on you. 
And then, Kendall, can I pick on you? She knew it was coming. She saw it coming from a mile away. And she can come on up here. And Kaysen, can you come help me this morning, buddy? Y'all give Kaysen a big hand clap. Awesome. All right, I need y'all to just kind of stand right here. And Kendall, come over here. And Kaysen, come over here. In a perfect world, this is the perfect family. You got a mom. You got a dad. You got one of each. You got a boy. You got a girl. And we're already thinking, oh, Lord. You got the perfect family. Everything is great on the outside. Everything looks wonderful on the inside. But the problem is, more than likely, this perfect family that we look as perfect, that, oh, they're always serving in the church. They're always doing things in the church. They're always helping in the church. Oh, Kaysen's just this great little guy. He's grown up to be such a strong man of God. Oh, this is so wonderful. But if this family, as good as they look on the outside, is one of the 93% that sit here in this chair of homelessness, the reality of what you see and the reality of what really is is far different. And we sat down in a staff meeting, and we began to deal with some of the main issues in life. Some of the main issues in life. And can I tell you that if they are living in chair two, the reality of perfection is far from there. In fact, the reality is if you're somebody Kaysen's age, and this is dealing with all kids, TWBC kids, everything a part of it. If they're raising their family in chair two, it doesn't matter how good they look. Kaysen, hold this. He struggles with acceptance. And his big fear is going to school and being accepted. His big fear is dressing alike, looking alike, acting alike, becoming somebody he's not so he can be accepted. His big fear is if I go to school and if I don't just act the way my friends do or don't have the shoes that my friends have, and being raised in this homeless slave chair, I must achieve something. I must become something I'm not so I can become something great so people will accept me. So he carries the burden of will I be accepted when I go to school today. Another burden he struggles with is being made fun of. Being made fun of. It's became a big reality in my house just uh, the past month. The weather turned cold, and we bought my youngest son this awesome, amazing jacket. It was an awesome jacket. I loved it. I would have it. He goes to put it on for school one day, and he starts bawling. And we said, Aaron, what is wrong? Why are you crying? He said, I'm going to get made fun of. I said, babe, why are you going to get made fun of? Because it's a girl's jacket. Because... See, he's never seen daddy wear a blue jean jacket. He's only seen mom wear a blue jean jacket. So immediately he, he equates a blue jean jacket with mom, not dad. And so now that we buy him this awesome, amazing blue jean jacket, it's got a sweet hoodie on it. And I mean, it's great. I'm kind of jealous of it, as a matter of fact. But all he equates it with is mommy, and I'm a boy, and I'm supposed to be growing up to be a man. And if I wear a girl's jacket to school, I'm going to get made fun of. And all the parents are out there thinking, that's just silly. But what you don't understand, that fear to him is as great as the fear of bankruptcy or cancer to me. That fear in his life, it doesn't matter how trivial it seems to you, it is the greatest thing he is facing. And because we haven't raised our kids to be sons, but we raised them in this chair of slaves, they carry around this burden of acceptance, and now I must begin to do things different to not be made fun of. And that is the greatest fear in his life. It doesn't matter how big it is to you. In his life, it controls every area of his thinking. 
And then you have no idea how much kids want this approval from adults. They want approval in everything they do. They want it, they seek it, they desire it, and and they want to make adults happy. It's when they keep trying and doing and trying to achieve, and we don't acknowledge, they begin to rebel. See, you either got religion or rebellion. You got one or the other. And our kids are being raised in this chair, too, of slaves, not really knowing you're a son and I love you no matter what. And and it's unconditional. And everything that I have is yours. They're being raised in this chair here where it thinks I got to earn the approval of my teachers. And if my teacher doesn't tell me good job today, then I didn't approve. And if she goes long enough without telling me good job, I then begin to rebel to get the attention or approval that I'm so longing for and seeking. This is reality. This is the real world, okay? I can talk about great spiritual concepts like last week, but until we deal with reality, we're never going to get to the, the true things. You have no idea how much our kids carry adult fears. They carry adult fears because they hear mom and dad talking about how broke they are and how little Billy's um, soccer practice is so expensive and everything they do at school costs $10 and we don't have $10. And they hear you say this, I don't even know how we're going to pay the electric bill. They begin to go to school with a fear of if I come home, we're not going to have electricity. I, 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 don't need, I, don't, I don't need that toy, Mom. It's okay. I don't need it. Well, why not? I want to buy it to you. No, it's okay. They're carrying around adult fears that they shouldn't be carrying because we can't keep our mouths shut. Because we don't talk about adult problems in adult places. We want to air our dirty laundry in front of our kids. Listen, I'm telling you, there's a big thing that's got to change if we're going to see reality go from this chair to this chair over here and we watch our kids grow up to be sons and not slaves to the system. We must begin to change the way we do things. And change comes, listen, the Bible says this, change even comes in the house of God first. If the world's going to change, we got to change. You ever heard your kids say this? I'm afraid of the dark. I'm afraid of the dark. And because they're raised in this chair here, they're afraid of the dark and fear's in place somewhere. And so the Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. And if there's a fear of the dark, there's a missing of love somewhere, that there's, a, there's an absence somewhere that's got to be filled. But little, little Johnny says, I'm afraid of the dark. And you as a parent, because you're having a bad day, say, that's just stupid. There's nothing to be afraid of. That monster under the bed to them is the biggest thing in the world. And because they're afraid of the dark, and now they know that mom and dad don't accept them because he just said I was stupid because I'm afraid of the dark, I'm living in fear that dad thinks I'm stupid or mom thinks I'm stupid. There's no acceptance. The dark is still carrying me. And so in fear, they wet their bed, and then they wake up the next morning and get a whooping for wetting their bed. Oh, come on. This is reality. This is is 90% of Sulphur Springs' population. And they wake up, and now they're in trouble for wetting their bed, so now they're afraid to go to bed the next night because dad thinks they're stupid or mom thinks they're stupid, and they're not accepted because of the fear of the dark that made them wet the bed in the first place when if you would have just sat down and loved and said, son, don't you know that all that I have is yours? And daddy's not leaving. I'm here to protect you. I'm here to make sure everything's good. We're going to begin to pray right now and ask for the spirit of sonship to come upon you, that the presence of the Father would fill this room, and there would be peace in this house. I mean, come on, and, and, and I'm just dealing with kids now. We, we got young adults, we got youth coming up, we got adults, and we got other ones coming. Kids are devastated about this one. Mommy and daddy are going to get a divorce. 
Because they see divorces happening all the time. The minute they hear mom and dad fight and, and cuss at each other and, and scream at each other and tell each other, I'm done. This is just the, I'm leaving. They fear this. It's the most devastating words your kids can ever hear is divorce. We got to change. Because divorce leads to, to this. Abandonment. Abandonment. And parents end up going and getting divorced, and the first thing they say is, little Sam, it's not your fault. What's not his fault? Have you ever stopped to explain to him what's not his fault? Because all he hears is how he's so much trouble, and he's the only thing he can think of that's causing you trouble, and so he thinks he's the cause of your divorce. Have you ever thought about what's not his fault? Have you ever explained it to him? Because this is the reality of chair two. And if we don't get chair two to move to chair one, this is going to be the common reality in the church for years and years and years to come. Right. We must begin to change. Then we got youth. As they grow up, they're not accepted. They're worried about being made fun of, so this becomes the biggest word in their life, comparison. I'm going to begin to compare. I'm going to begin to compare if I'm not as good as this person, or as skinny as this person, or as tall as this person, or as strong as this person, or as fast as this person, if I'm not as good as this person is, then I'm just not worth anything. And listen, the American culture is built on comparisons. There's nothing that we don't compare in America. We compare houses, we compare cars, and everything's a tournament, and everything's a champion, and everything's got to have the winner. And I do understand that side of things, but I also need you to understand that Comparison made that it be done at school doesn't need to be done in your household. Well, if you just practice as hard as everybody else, you'd be just as good as everybody else. If you'd study like your friends do, you'd be as smart as your friends. Really? These are our great parenting skills in the body of Christ. Great parenting skills. They carry this, grown people problems. Grown people problems. They carry it. Because they've grown up hearing all the way, can't pay the electric bill all the time. All these grown people problems. They carry grown people problems. And you wonder why your kids want to close their door in their room and play Xbox with headphones on. It's probably because they don't want to hear your trash anymore. They've grown up all their life hearing how bad things are, how horrible things are. And now that you said, I'm done and I'm leaving, but you've never left, all they think is everything is a lie, so they don't even know what to believe is the truth. I mean, it's a reality. And the sermon is called Reality for a Reason. Because if we don't start training out of this chair here of sonship, we're going to raise up a generation of slaves that won't submit to our church religion anymore. They're fixing to go straight off in rebellion because they don't care about what, what, what religion says. They want something that's real, something that's true. That's why church ain't going to look the same in 15 years because they're seeking something completely different. It's not about showing up to early service or second service. It's about, does the presence of God show up when I enter this place? And it's going to look completely different. By the time they're this age and you do fulfill your word and you do finally get a divorce, they're wrecked. They don't know who to follow. Now you're saying, you choose. Who do you want, mom or dad? Pick which one you want to go to. You're of age. You pick which one you like better. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Do you see the devastation of chair two that we're fighting with? Overlooked pain. You may not think their first girlfriend, boyfriend breakup is a big deal, but it shattered their heart. 
and you just taught them that in the shattering of their heart, that, oh, you just broke up with this person or they broke up with you, it's not a big deal. And their heart was shattered, and you wonder why a generation is rising up where divorce isn't a big deal. Because you told them all along, you can date somebody and break up with somebody, date somebody, break up with somebody, date somebody, break up with somebody, and it's just not a big deal. (laughs) Can I get an amen in the house? I mean, really? And all that overlooked pain of every relationship that has never been dealt with harbors rejection because they were rejected. It harbors, uh, uh, listen, soul ties that need to be broken because you gave your heart to somebody else. Some of y'all need to get in tune with some of this. It's got overlooked emotional pain where somebody broke up with somebody and started dating somebody that they said was better looking. And so now they don't look as good. So now they're going on this workout plan or this diet plan to start looking better than somebody else because I just don't compare. They're scared of this like never before, their future. They're scared of their future like never before. They don't know what's going on. They don't even know what's going to take place in the world. They have no clue about what their future holds. And we're making them choose their future by sometimes 10th grade now. Get in your college by 10th grade. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm glad we offer college at 10th grade. I really am. And I hope my kids is smart enough to be right in there with it. But when we force them to choose the rest of their life, when their frontal decision-making part of their brain doesn't fully develop between ages 22 and 24, and they're 14, they're freaking out about their future because now if I choose the wrong path and i got to change my mind, mom and dad are going to be so disappointed in me. And so then we become somebody we're not because of a fear of disappointment because we've learned how to live in chair two. Chair two, you work to achieve, and if you're working to achieve, you don't disappoint. The very first video we showed, the very first series of this message, uh, Miss Judy Moore said, I became whatever the household needed to become, so I didn't disappoint them. I could transform myself into anybody just so I could eat. They freak out about disappointment. They don't know how to deal with blended families. And not just blended families. Families that get divorced and you just go move in with somebody for two years and then move out. And then you move in with somebody else a couple months later for two years and then move out. And then move in with somebody else a couple years later for two years and and then move out. And they've had so many people in and out of their life and back and forth in their life. They don't even know how to deal with society. They struggle with doubt. They got a big issue with how do I deal with my body changing and puberty How do I deal with these feelings that I've never had before? And because as a child, I was afraid of the dark and dad said it was stupid and I ended up wetting my bed and I was rejected and I'm not accepted, I'm definitely not going to ask him about my body changing. And I will go to the internet, I will go to my friends, but I'm not going to my parents. Because every time I go to them with something serious to me, even though it's not to you, serious to me, all as I get is rejection and called stupid and say it's not a big deal. Well, it is a big deal. It's a giant deal. They're all looking for identity. They're all looking for identity. They're all looking for who they are, who they're trying to become. Where do I belong? Who is this? This one. Respect for authority. 
I've heard everybody my age and older. I don't understand this younger generation, how they have no respect for authority. I'll tell you exactly how they have no respect for authority. Because all they see is mom and dad's Facebook posts of how they hate the president, how they wish he wasn't president, how they hate the law enforcement, and how stupid this was over here, and how dumb these people are over here. And so when, you act, when they act out on it, no respect for authority, they learned it by watching us. And if you don't want your kids to see what you have on Facebook, don't friend them. Because you're not their friend, you're their parent anyway. And that's the reality of the situation. And by the way, if your kids are younger than 13, it's illegal for them to be on Facebook. Am I right about that age? If they're younger than 13, it's illegal for them to have a Facebook account. Some of y'all need to go start deleting accounts. Because you purposely lied to Facebook and that organization to get them on when you put their birthday in as a different birthday. And you wonder why your kids don't tell the truth and they're not honest with you. Because you lie for them. So they can feel accepted. And then you blast people on Facebook and wonder why they have no respect for authority. Wow, do you see the devastation of chair two? See, this is the reality of chair two. And we think, oh, chair two is just homeless slave. No, this is the reality of chair number two. And then we move on to young adults. I'm talking the people ages 18 on up. Because they haven't found a career. Because they, Tara, can you come on up here? Since you're a young adults person, I didn't get a third young adult up here. <laughs> Tara will be our young adult. Their career. They're trying to look for their career. What do I do? Who do I become? Because by 10th grade, I'm supposed to have chosen this. But now I'm 20. And I still don't have a clue of what I want to do with my life. And instead of telling them to go to the presence of God for a little bit, get along with God and find out, or take a year and go to Bible school and find out who God actually is so you have a firm foundation. And I'm telling you, parent, parents, we're so weird about this. Well, my kid gets out of school, he needs to go right into college, and he's going to prove something. He's going to make something of himself. He's going to be better than mom and dad. You're living from chair two, and you're training them how to do the same. When the greatest thing you can do as a parent, if your child is at a place of indecision, send them to Bible school for a year so at least when they come out, they know who they are in Christ, and they're not worried about impressing a world that they don't need to impress, but they can fall into sonship with the Father and become who they're called to become. But, but oh, that, we can't do that. They're worried about marriage. East Texas is the worst. You're 25 and not married in East Texas? Oh, Lord, you're going to be an old maid. You'll never get married. And for you women, it's really bad. I mean, I'm telling you. They're, they're so concerned about marriage and getting married. Because in East Texas, if you're not married at 24, goodness. Uh, yes, yeah, something's wrong if you're not married at 24. When you go to Dallas, the average age of people getting married is 30 to 32. 90 miles away, less than 90 miles away, just cross Ray Hubbard, 60 miles away. The average age of people getting get married goes up by six years. But we're North, you're wrong if you're not married by 25. The worst thing you can do, parents, is force your kids to get into a relationship and get married before they should. It's the worst thing you can do. They're struggling with identity. Because I don't have a career and I'm not married, I don't fit in anywhere. <laughs> I don't have a place at all. Yeah, you do. It's called crossover. Go drink coffee and hang out with people who like precious faith. Find a place. Because when you find a place called home, you'll develop an identity in the home. Choices. Choices they got to make. They got to make big time life choices. Do I buy a house or do I rent an apartment? Do I buy a house or do I rent an apartment? I don't know what to do. And because when I was a kid and I told my parents I was afraid of the dark and they said I was stupid, dun, 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 
high school, I didn't ask him about puberty and passion, and now I got me and a little one because I didn't ask my parents. I'm definitely not going to ask him, should I buy a house or, or rent an apartment? Because all I've ever gotten was, I'm stupid. Major life choices. We set them up for failure. Parents, how many of you have not taught your kids how to balance a checkbook by 10th grade? Oh, I haven't. That's because I don't know how to do it. Oh, right. That's exactly right. We're setting them up for failure. We're setting them up for failure every year because we haven't done life training with them. We haven't brought them to career day. We haven't told them how to be a, a man or woman. We haven't told them to show up five minutes early and stay ten minutes late after work. Make sure you're the first one there and the last one to leave. We haven't taught them life skills. We've set them up for failure. The transition. You think the transition from uh, puberty to and, and passion in adolescence is hard. Try this transition in today's world. Try this transition. Because if you're a single mom or a single dad out there and you're 24 or 25 because you got into the wrong marriage and now you're transitioning into this new role called young adulthood that you have no place and you have no identity except a single mom or single dad that's been divorced and all these negative things that go on, try that transition. They don't even know if they want to date again, much less think they should date again. But if they're not dating again, something's weird with them. When they're not a project to be fixed, they're a person to be loved. They're a person to be loved. Relationships, I just touched on that a second ago. It's a massive vision, or a massive, a massive problems. And what I think is the, the, the hardest one is this right here. It's called prison vision. It's called prison vision. Prison vision is this. Because they're at this age, they think, I'm in northeast Texas, I can't get out. I've got to get married by a certain age. I've got to have a certain career in place. I've got to have so many kids by a certain age. All they see is the prison that they're in. When one of the main things you should be able to do is if you're at this age and in this age group, go see the world. There's a lot bigger world than Silver Springs, Texas. Thank you, Jesus. Go on a mission trip. Go serve in an organization in Mexico for a while. Go find a place to give your life and to show yourself and show, show God that you're going to do whatever he calls you to do. But because they're here and they feel literally stuck here, they develop something called prison vision, so they settle in every area of their life. They settle for a job they're not destined for and wonder why they hated in five years. They settle for a marriage that they were never called to be in, but they should be married by 25, and so they get divorced in 10 years. They settle for, for, for this relationship. Now they're not just settling for a relationship, but now they end up having kids that all they know how to do is teach them how to settle because they never had vision. I say this all the time. Parents, the greatest thing you can ever do for your kids is live your life to the fullest, not give up your life for them. Because when you show them how to live your life to the fullest, they'll live their life to the fullest. They'll watch amazing things happen. Adults. Adults in the room. Because we sit in this amazing chair right here, one of the biggest issues we face is this as adults. It's divorce. I put up with this marriage for 15 years. I'm done. My kids are old enough to choose who they want to be with. We hate each other. We've let it go that far. We hate each other. We don't even sleep in the same house. We play like we like each other in public. Divorce. But, oh, if we get a divorce, will our friends accept us? Because our friends are all mutual. 
Now our friends have to choose. Are they going to be friends with me or are they going to be friends with you? And if I'm accepted by this one but rejected by this one, we're thinking, well, they didn't like me all along. And there's problems. Then comparisons. Oh, we got to be like the Joneses. Just because somebody on your street gets a new truck don't mean you need to go buy a new truck. Good Lord, we're not in third grade anymore. Because little Billy got a superhero don't mean you get a superhero. I mean, really? Uh, These are real deals. But do you see how it hadn't changed from child to to youth to young adults to mature adults? Do you see how nothing's changed? It's It's a cycle that goes over and over. We got unresolved hurt. But in our unresolved hurt, we've made something called inner vows. Inner vows are these. My unresolved hurt in my childhood, in my adolescence, has made me make an inner vow that says, I will never be like my mom or my dad, my aunt or my uncle. I will never be like that boss. I will never be like that person. I will never, I will never, I will never. And in that, you have set up a fear-based vow rather than a faith-based declaration. And that fear-based vow will bind you, and it'll bring you to a place where I'm never going to be like this. And you find yourself 10 years later divorced, just like your parents got divorced, doing the same things just like your parents did. And baggage. You carry this thing called baggage. Because all this baggage from all your life, you've just been carrying it. You look like, you look like the bellboy at a hotel. And all you do is you got baggage everywhere. You got the baggage of the past hurt. You got the baggage of past relationship that you done brought into this relationship. And you're treating this person like she treated this person. And you wonder why you're getting all this stuff messed up. It's because you didn't drop the bag from this place before you went into this place. And that must begin to change. A big fear when we get in this age is called medical crisis. A medical crisis. What happens when cancer shows up? What happens when a car wreck happens? What happens when not medical crisis, major crisis, one of you loses a job? What happens? This is the reality of the world we live in. And it's a big time fear because we don't understand that all that the Father has is ours and we're sons. A great thing that we must begin to do is this, this age is a fear of admitting failure. I hear parents say this all the time. How can I tell my kids not to do this when I did it? Because you're not their friend, you're their parent. You tell them where you messed up so they don't make the same mistakes you made. How can I tell my kids not to go get drunk in high school when all I did was drink in high school? Because you can say, it's by the grace of God I didn't die in a car wreck. Don't do it. My parents, when I was growing up the whole time, both of my parents smoked. Like two packs a day smoked. And they said, Joel, this is the dumbest thing we ever did. Don't do it. I'm admitting my failure. And praise God, he's delivered them from both. They've delivered both of them from it since then. But I'm admitting my failure. And, and listen, if you are this family here that's been divorced, why don't you go to this guy here and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry we put you through a divorce when you never were meant to go through a divorce. Because as bad as your heart is hurting as a parent because you're divorced, their heart's hurting worse because mom and dad hate each other and I'm forced to choose. Why can we not apologize to this generation and say, I'm sorry, we messed up this whole thing called family. And I apologize that we got a divorce and drugged you through it. See, admitting failure is not a bad thing. Admitting failure will actually bring you to a place where God can make you new. 
And then a great fear of this generation is taking care of two generations. Taking care of two generations. What do I mean by that? When you're in my shoes here, I'm looking at in the next 15 years, I'm looking at how do I take, make sure my parents are taken care of, but also my kids are taken care of. Because see, me and my wife had kids later, later in life. I mean, I'm about to be 40 and my kid's six. So in 10 years, my oldest son will be 16. And my parents will, and, and, and my parents will be 10 years older. So we look at this and say, what if a medical crisis happens and we got to take care of our parents that are older than us and our kids that are younger than us? What do we do? This generation is freaking out trying to take care of two generations. And it's not that they're incapable, but the truth of the matter is life continues to go on. Joel's not getting younger. And neither are my kids and neither are my parents. And we live in this great fear. And finally, Heath, can you come up here? Help me out right quick. I'm going to wrap this thing up. You have the generations that I call empty nesters. And that now, now, let me qualify this right quick. This generation of empty nesters, they're not old people. They can be 40 and above. If you had a child when you were 20 or 21, and they had a child when they were 20 or 21, you can be 42 and be a grandparent, and they're out of the house, and you're thinking, what in the world do I do? You go live it up is what I'm telling you to do. Is what you, I mean, go change the world. I mean, go have fun. Enjoy life. You're young enough to keep doing it. Go on a vacation. Take a cruise around the world. I don't care. Go live. I mean, go have fun. You're not dead. If you're still breathing, go enjoy life to the full. I mean, come on. But the greatest fear, amen. The greatest fear because we don't live life to the fullest and let our kids watch it. We lived our life for our kids. After our kids leave the house, I'm useless. Uh, what is my use? I have no use in the body of Christ. Who is it? Who, who, they ask this question. Now, who am I? I? I'm not a parent anymore. I'm still a parent, but now I'm a grandparent. But th that role is different. Who am I? I, I, don't fit in, I don't fit in the young adult class. I'm in the, in the empty nesters group, but, but I don't relate with them because they're in their 60s and I'm just in my 40s. Who am I? Where do I go? What do I do? What is my purpose? What do I do now? What do I do in the church? What do I do? Okay, so I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not the person who can help out and rage anymore because my kids are out of youth. What is my purpose? Where am I at? And then... What about my financial decisions? What do I do? What do I begin to do? How do I do this? Do, do I pay for my children that are struggling right now because they got married way before they should because they were forced into a relationship they should have never been in because we taught them how to settle in their relationship. Now they're broken, financially uh, uh, bankrupt. What do I do with my financials? Do I pay the rent of their apartment? Do I make them move in with me? And do I raise two generations? What do I do? And then as you get older... You start dealing with this. I couldn't do what I used to do. I can't mow my yard like I used to mow my yard. My worth has now just gone from here to here. It's gone from here to here. And then finally, death isn't something that can happen. Death is a reality. It's not just so much a reality. It's a reality to this point of, it's not just if it's going to happen, it's, when is it going to happen and how is it going to happen? And am I prepared for death? And see, in chair two, the reality of the perfect family of four that we had at the beginning. 
We've been living in chair two, and this is the reality of real life. In almost every household across the church, across America, we struggle with this reality. And it's because we live in this chair. It's because we have always been taught that if I am in this life, I must work to achieve something. Solomon had the same problem. He said at the end of his life, vanity, it's all vanity. And it's all worthless is what he ended up saying. All of it. And so in this life, as we're in this place of reality of death, when and how, and baggage that we're facing over here, and taking care of two generations, and we're dealing with abandonment, and we're taking care of respect for authority and trying to figure that out, and we got prison vision over here, we don't really realize that all that the Father has is ours. All that He has is ours. And there's three common core fears that, that transcend every one of these generations here. It's called divorce, it's called debt, and it's called death. Three greatest fears out of all, three, all of these generations. It's divorce, debt or financial bankruptcy, and death. And we're living in chair two in great fear about those three things. Y'all give them a hand clap this morning as they're being seated. So where do we go from here? Mitch, if you and the worship team can come on up. Where do we go from here? How do I change this reality? Because this is reality. How do I change it? Could y'all relate to any of those things that I just talked about? I mean, if you related to any of those, just hold your hand up high. If not, I'll change the complete message for second service and come back. <laughs> Here's why. Here's how you change this from where we live here to this right here. You receive the truth of who the Father is through a new experience with Him today. I know you were born again. I know you're saved. But I also know you didn't have a sonship spirit placed upon you. Today I need you to receive the truth of who the Father is through a new experience with Him. How many of you guys have ever believed this? You believed at one point in your life you thought this or you actually, it was reality, that you believed God was distant and disinterested in your life. Hold your hand up. Just hold it. We're being honest. We're home and we're family. Man, I felt like that before. God, do you even care? <laughs> I mean, my baby just died. Do you even care? Where are you? Are you even there? See, a lot of us through heartache have believed God is distant and disinterested. But Psalm 139 says he's intimate and involved. And today, you need to receive the truth and have a new experience with the Father through intimacy and involvement with Him this morning. I'm talking intimacy and involvement with Him this morning through this worship set. Have you ever thought that God is insensitive and uncaring? Have y'all ever made a statement, God, do you even care? <laughs> Hold your hand if you've ever made that statement or thought that. He's insensitive. He doesn't really care about my needs. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 14 said He's kind and compassionate. Some of you guys look at God like this, that you think God is stern and demanding. And if you don't, God will get me, or I'm not going to have all the stuff that I think I should have as the blessing of God, because this is the way God is. 
And when I read the Bible, I read it through the lenses of he's stern and demanding and he's a harsh God. Y'all ever had that thought? I, I mean, I used to live like that. It's like in fear of disappointing God. If you've ever struggled with that, just hold your hand up real high. God's too stern. He's too demanding. I can't meet the regulations of God. You're right. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. See, the fact is God is accepting, full of joy and love. How many of you ever thought God is just passive and cold? You're going through a crisis in your life and he's passive. He's not there. He's cold. It's like, God, I just want to feel you. I want to feel your presence. I want to know that you're here. You ever felt like that before? If you felt like that, just raise your hand. You thought God's passive and cold. What about God just flat out being absent? God, where were you? I cried out to you. I did everything the Bible said to do. I prayed. I called out to you. I even fasted, and I needed an answer, and you didn't show up. Because here you work to achieve. Here, all that the Father has is already yours. 